Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. I'm being joined by my co-host Ryan Rosenthal for this third installment of our special mini-series with the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center, highlighting 100 ideas for the first 100 days of the Biden administration. This week, we have three great ideas. The first, Robert Manning's idea to harness artificial intelligence for cooperation across government. Two, we have Safa Shawan Edwards, who discusses why we need to establish a cybersecurity alliance internationally. And our third idea is with James Denoy, who talks about why we need to make the Department of Health and Human Services a member of the intelligence community in order to strengthen pandemic prevention. Artificial intelligence has a great impact on all of our lives, and this technology has far-reaching implications for national and international security. We talk with Robert Manning, who is a senior fellow with the Scowcroft Center at the Atlanta Council. Robert has spent a career in the U.S. government, serving within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the State Department, and the Defense Department, and he also worked at the Council on Foreign Relations. We asked Robert what his idea is and why it's so important. We're in the beginning of a, a, revolu- a technology revolution, and AI is kind of like the electricity. It's, it's an, like an enabler to everything else. And it, it, it's an, uh, data plus algorithm is AI, and it's going to be the uh, it's going to drive economic growth in every sphere, finance, agriculture, law, healthcare industry over the next generation and and this technology is pretty much ungoverned and uh, there's a there's a, a, a rich literature about catastrophic about complex systems and how they fail and sometimes they fail catastrophically think for example of an autonomous weapon that could start a nuclear war and there's a lot of people very concerned about the rise of autonomous weapons. And so I think it's a, it's a, it should be a priority for all, uh, all major governments, particularly leading-edge technology nations like the U.S., Europe, China, Japan, to try to create a governance structure for how to regulate the use of these technologies. We've already seen, for example, in facial recognition Uh, surveillance, some of the problems that crop up. Artificial intelligence is rapidly growing, both in the commercial and the military sectors. However, while it has been growing globally and has been used by many different countries and major powers throughout the world, there still hasn't been an international rulebook, a set of standards that would govern its application. Mr. Manning goes further into this. We're beginning to see uh, AI applications all over the place. And so far, uh, ironically, it's the tech companies that have been on the cutting edge because they're, they're worried about safety and, and consumer acceptance because this is, a, this is a, a big part of how they see their economic future. But governments have been too slow. And it's ironic because uh, the research I've done there have been a, 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 a list, a list of, of major ethical principles issued by Europeans, 
by uh, American technologists, Department of Defense, and even uh, China. And what I've done is looked them all over, and there's some very important common threads, right? And there's four or five key principles. One is uh, human safety and human benefit should be part of it. Second is transparency and failure. If an AI fails, we need to be able to understand why it failed so it doesn't happen again. Uh, accountability, liability. You know, if we have autonomous cars, uh, we have to have standards so that everybody's accountable and liable for them. So there's a number of those kinds of principles that seem to be uh, in common amongst most of the players, but we have not operationalized them in, into uh, regulations, norms, standards yet. They're happening very ad hoc on an application-specific basis. And so I think it's important to get a, and because if we don't get a universal set of deck of standards and principle, we risk facing a, a race to the bottom of for people doing whatever they want. With artificial intelligence becoming increasingly important for both the public and private sector, Robert discusses his recommendation for the Biden administration and how they should approach dealing with artificial intelligence cooperation. I think there's several levels of it. I think the G20 is a good body because it represents about 90% of the world economy and all the major actors in it. But first, I think the U.S. has to get its act together. We still don't even have a privacy law, right? Privacy is one of the principles. So one of my, my thoughts is that the President Biden should put together a presidential commission of technologists, engineers, scientists, Congress, and, and the private sector, and try to come up with a, a set of recommendations for the U.S. to move forward on. I, I think it has to be done on a public-private uh, partnership basis, because it's, it, the government doesn't do a lot of innovation. It's the private sector that's, that's driving most of the, of the research uh, on, on AI. So there has to be a cooperative approach. And I think the private sector is, is, is interested in this. And I think it, we need kind of a smart governance on this stuff because it really, the, the downside risks are quite enormous. I think the U.S. needs to go to the, to the G20 and make it a priority issue to, to begin to uh, negotiate a set of standards and, and, a regular, and, and try to create a kind of international regulatory body to manage this, this, this issue. Do we need a cybersecurity alliance? An alliance that puts cybersecurity at its core? Safa Shawan Edwards, the Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative, discusses why we might want to consider this, as she outlines why certain organizations such as NATO, which do have cyber components, may not adequately meet the need of the day. So I guess the reason why I examined this particular issue, looking at a cyber alliance, is because the United States works very hard to defend its values and its interests and international allies and partnerships and play a really crucial role in these efforts as they relate to traditional defense issues. Traditional alliances like NATO have proven very effective over the years, bolstering trust and security within the Atlantic community. But at the same time, NATO has also been retrofitted to also include cybersecurity. 
while this is generally a positive development, it also highlights gaps and shortcomings when governments decide to adapt existing organizations and frameworks to include cyber and other disruptive technologies. Alliances create obligations for their members. And with the unregulated nature of cyberspace, how might such obligations actually impact the alliance in practice? Safa talks to us about how this might play out and what a cyber alliance would actually look like given such obligations. Yeah, so I think this matters right now just because two years ago, NATO confirmed that a serious cyber attack could invoke Article 5. Uh, and Article 5 is an article within the NATO framework where an armed attack on one member state is considered an armed attack on all member states. Uh, despite the statement and this, this confirmation from NATO, uh, there is still a great deal of debate on the likelihood that a, a member of the alliance wouldn't actually invoke Article 5 for a cyber attack. We have to remember also that Article 5 was developed in a place and at a time in history where the principle of an attack on one being an attack on all was much easier to understand, prove, and enforce in traditional physical security alliances. In cybersecurity, such a commitment might be hard to enforce with attribution challenges and the sheer number of cyber attacks that governments face. Uh, most cyber literature suggests that the threshold for war is past what we need to effectively collaborate with other countries. But we're seeing NATO trying to move, move, NATO is currently moving in that direction, and we're not entirely sure if every single member state of, the, of, of NATO is willing to be, have that obligation to be ready to defend its, its, uh, its member, its member, the NATO member states and allies when they are confronted with a cyber attack. That being said, trying to move away from using that existing NATO framework where an attack on one is an attack on all could be really valuable here, where you do have this alliance that focuses more on collaboration, information sharing. And there isn't quite that obligation just yet uh, for two reasons. One, the sheer, the sheer number of cyber attacks that governments face every day. That obligation is, is really serious and it's relatively unclear if any government, any one government is ready to, to take on that responsibility. And then two, the amount of capacity that does not exist within governments. It'll also require a lot of collaboration with the private sector who have the majority of the capacity in many Western countries who would be a good candidate for being a, uh, a cyber ally with the U.S. So starting off with baby steps, focusing on information sharing, law enforcement coordination, et cetera, and then we can cross that bridge on defense, on uh, collective defense later. Safa now tells us specifically what she would recommend in terms of the U.S. actually building a cybersecurity alliance with an existing military ally and how this would actually look in practice. Yeah, so my recommendation is to move away from retrofitting existing and often antiquated frameworks to meet our modern needs. Uh, the U.S. should develop a cybersecurity alliance with an existing military ally uh, with a particular focus on, one, promoting democratic values, two, international cooperation on cyber challenges, and three, collective cybersecurity. A cyber alliance outside of the context of NATO could allow for the U.S. to collaborate with an ally within or outside the transatlantic community who would provide an immense value on information sharing, law enforcement coordination, incident response, sanctions, indictments, etc. Uh, for example, and just throwing this out there, a cyber alliance with Israel could uh, provide a lot, a lot of value uh, being a, a partner in the Middle East uh, and a a country that is relatively cyber savvy when compared to other countries. Um, so there's a lot of room for adaptations and growth here that hasn't really been examined before. Can a cybersecurity alliance actually deter conventional warfare? Safa digs into this interesting question right now. I think it depends who you ask. Um, I think that, well, there are a lot of experts in our community that do think that cyber operations 
And so even cyber offensive measures, for example, like a Stuxnet is actually very valuable because it provides an off-ramp on escalation or provides an opportunity for countries to engage in escalatory measures or be able to defend themselves or engage in offensive measures without necessarily physically hurting people or also for a country like the U.S., also needing to get political the political will in order to get Congress to approve certain actions. Uh, it's a lot easier to create an operation where you can damage centrifuges in the towns as opposed to going to Congress and asking for the authority to uh, take armed action against Iran. As vaccines are distributed around the world, many within the U.S. government are asking, could we have prevented this? We next talk to Jim Danoy, a retired career intelligence officer from the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency who worked with me within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and many other organizations within the U.S. intelligence community. Jim tells us about his idea of adding HHS to the intelligence community and why it's so important. Well, the key issue up front was... uh to actually have the Department of uh, Health and Human Services become a member of the intelligence community. And the reason I made that as a recommendation is that I think it's clear uh, now to all of us, all Americans and those around the world, that you know the COVID-19 pandemic has made it crystal clear that combating infectious diseases must be a top national security priority, requiring a whole of government approach. And thus, uh, In the past, certainly as a member of the intelligence community, having served 38 years in the intelligence community, I retired uh, last year at the end of January, just before the COVID-19 pandemic uh, came in. So knowing that one of the key roles of the intelligence community, it's raison d'etre, is to support our national security priorities. So when you have a situation where you have a pandemic that to date has has killed uh, over 540,000 Americans, more combat deaths, as the president has said, that, that Americans have suffered in, in both world wars, in, in the Korean War and Vietnam, that uh, it just begs the question, what more can the intelligence community do to, one, uh, prevent pandemics from occurring? And if so, how to, how to mitigate uh, the effects uh, once a pathogenic outbreak uh, takes place? We are fast realizing why health security is an integral national security problem. However, the Health and Human Services Department has never fully been integrated into the U.S. intelligence community. Jim outlines why this has been the case. It's not to say that there there hasn't been a a nexus between what uh, the intelligence community does and uh, the issue of bioterrorism, as you said, and the applicability of what what we're, we're dealing with in terms of of a pandemic. But I think it's it's really a case of, you know, we're really in the process of redefining what national security means. I mean, when I started in the intelligence community in the early 1980s, I mean, the existential threat was viewed as, as the danger of nuclear war with the Soviet Union. And uh, we, we acted accordingly. We built a strategy around deterrence. And if deterrence failed, the ability to defend and defeat our, our adversary. And while uh, rhetorically, I, I think we understand now that we have a broader national security uh, definition, and that things such as climate change is also an existential threat. Uh, and obviously, a, a pandemic uh, has is also an existential threat. So while rhetorically, we, we, we accept that, and we're sort of moving in that direction, I think just organizationally and bureaucratically, 
we're still kind of set in, in the old sort of Cold War mentality. And thus, if you look at the composition of the intelligence community, it's, it's, it, it really uh, is, is military and defense focused. And thus, to think in terms of having someone like uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has kind of been a stretch. And that's why I think we haven't seen it and, and why, although maybe some other people have thought about it, I think now's the opportunity given, uh, given what we've been facing uh, to make that, make that move. As the Biden administration attempts to deal with the coronavirus pandemic in all aspects, Jim tells us what his recommendation is and how it will work. First, you have to kind of determine what what should be the role of the intelligence community. So it's kind of defining what what value added the intelligence community provides in combating infectious diseases and dealing with 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 pandemics. And uh, you know, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, which is under the Department of Health and Human Services, conducts what 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 they call syndromic surveillance, gathering data on emergency patient symptoms. They do this in cooperation in the states with federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial authorities under what they call their national uh, syndromic surveillance program. Now, internationally, uh, they also do uh, surveillance as well under what they call their global disease detection program. And the CDC has a number of operation centers, uh, 10 centers worldwide. They do what they call events-based surveillance. They work with the uh, World Health Organization and partner countries. Uh, uh, One of the Achilles heels, though, of of that program is that it's it's dependent on host country cooperation. Uh, And as we've seen in the case of China, you know, China was not forthcoming in terms of uh, the outbreak of the the coronavirus, uh, uh, COVID-19 virus, which, you know, when you're dealing with with a pathogenic outbreak, time is of the essence. And so... What I'm talking about here is the intelligence community assisting in the detection, surveillance, and monitoring of uh, in a support role to the public health community. So how can that how can that be facilitated? And the recommendation to have the Health and Human Services Department as part of the intelligence community is that you know uh, when it comes to formulating your collection priorities, getting getting all of the things in terms of putting all of the collection and analytic capabilities that the intelligence community can apply to this problem set, it's very important that the organization that's going to benefit from this and that you want to cooperate with has a seat at the table. So while I'm saying you cannot, you you cannot have, you know, it's not impossible to have intelligence community cooperation with the public health community, uh, certainly that can happen, but it's certainly that cooperation and collaboration would be facilitated if HHS was actually at the table. And having worked during my career as a national intelligence manager uh, in the office of the director of national intelligence and been around the table where our various customers uh, are around the table, it has it does make a difference. It is known that the defense apparatuses and the intelligence communities within the United States does cooperate with our foreign partners and their own intelligence services. What would this coordination look like in terms of health security? Jim talks about this further. Obviously, uh, viruses don't respect borders, and so you need to have that international co- cooperation. So as, I'm, so as I say, the intelligence community applying its collection and analytic capabilities uh, against this problem set, that is of infectious diseases, 
in terms of collection, human intelligence, uh, geospatial intelligence, uh, signals intelligence, uh, even open source intelligence, and also applying our, our analytic uh, techniques like our structured, uh, structured analytic techniques and, and leveraging artificial intelligence. All of those things that you need in terms of improving detection, surveillance, and monitoring, the more partners you have is going to help. Uh, you know, you look at uh, traditionally in the intelligence community, we have what we call our Five Eyes Partnership, which is with the UK, uh, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, they can they can play an important role in a collaborative effort that could that could constitute sort of the the core. Uh, group within the intelligence community that we can have our closest cooperation. Well, but we also uh, certainly uh, need to have the cooperation of some, uh, some other key countries in, uh, in Asia, in Africa, and Latin America. And let me make this clear. I'm not, I'm not talking about the intelligence community being the lead in this, uh, because I think that's, it's important to, to make a differentiation here. I'm talking about the intelligence community being in a support role, in a support role of the public health community, and working really through uh, the CDC, which already has its uh, surveillance monitoring structure that it's established and already has its relationships with the public health community and the World Health Organization. So leveraging, leveraging those contacts and sort of riding the back of, of that, that public health community infrastructure that already exists, I think is the best way to go. And that concludes episode three of the Burnbag Podcast's 100 Ideas for the First 100 Days collaboration with the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center. You heard three great ideas from leading experts in the national security and foreign policy field. Make sure to check out the other great ideas in the episode description. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.